Welcome to the Psychology for Theology series. Theology is reflection on God and God's relationship to all things, but especially to human beings. Psychology is the scientific study of the thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors of those human beings. But usually these domains are siloed. Blueprint 1543 takes an integrated approach. Because in order to live full lives, solve big problems, and serve the culture, we'll need to draw on many different domains of knowledge. But as intellectual as some of this work is, we don't want these how, when, and why questions to feel disembodied and out there. We think this work matters because it actually makes a difference in people's lives, including yours. This is an eight-part series with a free downloadable workbook, available in the show notes. We hope you enjoy. This project was made possible through the support of a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation. I'm talking to Pamela Epstein King, the Peter L. Benson Professor of Applied Development Psychology at Fuller Seminary, as well as the Executive Director of the Thrive Center for Human Development. And I know you're also an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA. And you recently co-authored a book called Thriving in Stone Age Minds with my boss, Justin L. Barrett. That's an Ivy Press book. The subtitle is Evolutionary Psychology, Christian Faith, and the Quest for Human Flourishing, which will probably talk a lot of topics that get near what you guys are talking about in that book. And also the co-author of The Reciprocating Self, which is really popular. A lot of people find a lot of you there and the, the stuff that your heart's about, I think, in your research and your career path. Would you mind just starting by talking about what factors motivated you towards a psychology profession? What was tugging on your heart that like pushed you towards a psychology vocation? That is a great question. I've had a vocational volley between psych and theology and ministry. I actually ended up a psych major at Stanford as an undergrad. And I really mean ended up like was going to study technology, science, society and values was my an interdisciplinary major. At the end of junior year, I realized that I had almost completed a psych major minus like two courses. And I wanted to go overseas. So I was like, well, that's convenient. So I'll just finish those two courses when I get back from France and ended up graduating a psych major. Then I did end up working at Menlo Park Presbyterian Church, now known as the Menlo Church, for four years out of school in ministry, first working with high school students and then university students at Stanford as the college pastor there. And then while I was at Menlo, started taking classes at Fuller at their extension campus. And that was really practical. I am partly of Scottish origin and we can be very prudent and thought, well, that's a great idea to take advantage of these free seminary classes while I'm being paid almost nothing working for the church. But it was really fortuitous. And as I was working with young people, I really started to observe that life is challenging at these ages and at this stage of life, but kids with faith are somehow navigating the chaos of family breakups and job changes and moves and breakups of boyfriends and girlfriends and all that, some typical teen stuff and atypical teen stuff. And that's just something I think I absorbed through osmosis of spending time with both teenagers and university students. University students asking questions of how do I make sense of the world? How do I find my place in it? Some really interested in contributing to God's work and leading in that way. And so those questions, I think, ended up leading me to seminary. And then as I pursued my theology degree and my master's of divinity, 
realized this is really interesting and exciting. And I have a really strong sense that God wants this idea of a full life in Christ or an abundant life. And there is great goodness that occurs through our relationship with God. But I'm not really getting the intel on what's going on inside a person or how to make this occur more effectively for people or what kind of environments allow people to, the word I use is thrive. So that is what eventually led me to taking electives then in the School of Psychology at Fuller while I was doing my MDiv that eventually led to a PhD. So I actually had a poignant moment early on in my MDiv where Craig Detweiler, who many folks will know of, asked me what pushed my buttons. And he meant by that, like, what gets you excited? And I just spontaneously said, enabling people to be who God created them to be. And that was one of my first utterances of how I understand thriving and became a really like a lightning bolt moment of like, yeah, that's what I'm in this for. That's what I care about. Yeah. And it seems like you had an intuitive draw towards scientific ways of knowing. And it's clear now from all the research that you've done, but always still tied to the faith aspect and the spirituality aspect of things. Like I feel from you, like, what can we measure? How can, like, how can we use the scientific methodology to put a finer point on what we intuitively feel is faith makes teenagers more resilient and spirituality buttresses human thriving in an observable way? Like, how can we put a finer point on this? Would you say that's true? Absolutely accurate. And really like where I cut my empirical teeth, I suppose, was really asking the question empirically, like, how do we assess, how do we conceptualize, how do we understand spirituality from a psychological perspective? Mm -hmm. And when I finished my PhD in 2000, that was an area that was actually pretty taboo to study. Outside of James Thaler, who did like the stages of faith development in the 80s, there weren't a lot of people exploring what is the nature of spirituality. A few people were looking at like, what is the function of it? People were just beginning to ask, why is it associated with better health and mental health outcomes, but not really understanding the nuts and bolts of it. So that's really where I dug in for my empirical work. That's super cool, which this rolls in really easily to the first batch of questions that I wanted to bring up with you, which is how a person of faith might approach doing science. A couple of questions came in from our audience in that realm. What comes to mind for you when you think about a believing person, a Christian person versus a non-believing, non-Christian, which is a big tent, obviously, there's all different kinds of people when doing psychological research? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think fundamentally that I would say a distinction would be having different big fancy word that we like to use in places like seminaries, epistemologies. So we have different understanding of sources of knowledge. And so a purely empiricist person would limit their knowledge to things that are observable and measurable, like time, energy, mass, where a person of faith would acknowledge that there's sources of truth or knowledge that might come from beyond things that we can measure in a lab, that there might be some mysteries, some transcendence, some supernatural, or in the Christian worldview, God, that works mm -hmm. in ways that are beyond our immediate ways of knowing our current tools of measuring and operationalizing. From that perspective, as a person of faith, 
I tend to view science and more my expertise, psychological science, as a tool or a gift that God has enabled humankind to develop and continue to evolve to understand the goodness of God's creation. So for me, it feels like a really awesome opportunity to use a tool to understand the world that we've been given to live in and to be stewards. Would that affect, do you think, the findings of a scientific study? Or does the methodology sort of protect, you know what I'm saying, protect the, I guess there's like the findings of a study and then there's the interpretation of the findings to get a little bit into the weeds as a Christian researcher or non-Christian researcher. Yeah, well, depending on what type of, if we're looking at statistics, depending on like what types of statistical methods we use, we often account for in like scientific models like air variance, or we talk about how much variance was explained through different statistics. So there's always some that's not explained. And so a person of faith might say, oh, there is something beyond that we can measure that is operating here. If we're looking at the effects of prayer on mental health outcomes, um, Kent argument, that's an early study that he did that showed like, wow, we can explain a lot of the ways that prayer is impacting people or spirituality or religion is through social support, through positive values, through providing hope. But there's still this unexplained amount in the statistics. And those might be not thought of measurable concepts, or maybe there is something called the Holy Spirit. So I find as a person of faith, I approach stats and empirical work or any kind of research, qualitative, quantitative, with a degree of humility, that there is always something beyond me that I may not be able to grasp or apprehend or have the tools for. My experience is actually any really good empiricist, regardless of their worldview about supernatural (laughs) entities or not, also has that degree of humility that there's always something more that's learnable and understandable, but we just might attribute that to different sources. So that's really well said. That's, yeah, that's really really well said. What you just said remind me of like with Justin's research, how Mm -hmm. people have done all kinds of stuff with his research with interpreting his findings about how human beings seem to have a proclivity to want to believe in God and certain Mm -hmm. things about God or certain things about purpose in the world. So we kind of stepped into this in just your intro ways that your own faith has come Mm -hmm. to play into your work. But maybe you want to talk about some specific examples. How is your faith fueling the questions you're asking or how are you implementing findings or sharing findings in a faith context or however you want to answer that? I alluded to this very fundamental motivation or driving source. It's like, how do we understand how people become who God created them to be in the context of a fallen, broken world, in a world that's changing all the time? Obviously, culture has so many ways of evaluating people of what well-being or success or health or thriving or flourishing is. But what does that mean from a Christian perspective? What is God's intention for humankind? So that became a huge question for me that I really explored initially theologically and have drawn heavily on the Imago Dei of understanding human telos, or which is Greek word for purpose or goal. When I was tasked with teaching developmental psych in my earlier years, I was co-teaching with Jack Balswick, a former Fuller professor and a colleague, Kevin Reimer. And it was like, okay, we got 10 weeks. 
to teach wing to the tomb. There's a zillion psychological theories. Like, how do we, what's the most biblical? Like, Freud is like, hey, his telos is really like, is get much pleasure as you can without getting into too much trouble. There's always a telos. There's always, whether it's explicit or implicit, there's always a goal or a value behind like a theory of human development of what they're after, of what the highest stage is or whatever. So that ended up being my role is pausing us and going, okay, well, if we only have 10 weeks to teach all of this content, how can we create a course that really is aligned most with our biblical views that equips our students who are mostly becoming therapists or clinicians to help them get on board with enabling people to become who God wants them to be. And so this concept of the reciprocating self was something that I threw out as like, we're not actually really called to be autonomous beings from a Christian worldview. We are created to be in relationship with one another and God. And not just like in relationship where we lose our sense of self, but that we grow into this fullness of self, but with others and for others. That there's this position of contribution and generosity that we have as believers. And so at this point in my life, I've really come to understand, like, how do we grow into our full selves as we are participating in God's ongoing work of redemption and flourishing this world? So that's a theological idea. But like, so, okay, how do you grow into yourself? That is a human psychological development question. As you contribute to a world that's always changing and trying to make it better is a great psychological systems question. I then began looking in psychology for the conceptual tools to really unpack them and understand them more fully and from a more practical view. First, as I was teaching therapists, enabling therapists to come alongside people to not just alleviate pathology or mental health issues like depression and anxiety, but to actually give them a goal or in my word, tell us that's more than just the absence of pathology. So my science of thriving has really served a purpose of wanting to understand how to enable people to live in the fullness of life of Christ. Pam, this is why you're a rock star, because it is so much easier to talk about the human person like they are this static creature to study a human as just like a unit as a single unit but when you put a human person in the context of a network of relationships across a timeline that is hard that is hard to study it is really hard to study and when I was still a doctoral student or now I'm trying to think I actually think it was when I was a postdoc at Stanford a group of us came together and we called ourselves the thriving indicators project and Peter Benson who is now, I have a chair in doubt in his name, was the president of this institute. He headed this group and it included a guy named Bill Damon, who runs the Center on Adolescence at Stanford and has totally pioneered the psychology of purpose. And Richard Lerner at Tufts, who is also one of the greats of developmental science, who really pushes the systems orientation that you were talking about. Rich actually would say the unit of analysis can never be a person. It is always the person in relationship, which is actually multiple relationships, with their context. Because, you know, who we are as a static individual at an isolated minute in time is meaningless outside of the context 
in which we're, in, you know, live. So this group was, and then there were two faculty, Jim Furrow and Linda Wagner at Fuller as well. And we were tasked with coming up with indicators of thriving for youth. We started with a much more static conception and realized like, no, 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 thriving is literally a moving target. What happens over time? Are you adapting for good or worse? And then the reality is loss, suffering, challenge is part of life in the thriving journey, but it's what comes out of that over time that constitutes thriving life. Dang, that's so good. There's a temptation to want to keep things simple to the detriment of our learning because it's it's more complicated to talk about things over long periods of time or in a network of relationships or something. But I think there's so much richness there. First, I'll do the plug here. Like you mentioned, if people want to do a deep dive, they can look at reciprocating self. I think that's a great guide to what you're talking about because that's in conversation with theology, right? So that will give people great perspective on this topic. We also have on the Blueprint website a lot of resources from the talks you gave to our Theopsych seminars. You can actually go to theopsych.com and find them. There's links to the resources there. Okay, and then quickly, I wanted to ask you, are you, do you use thriving and flourishing sort of interchangeably or is there any difference between those terms? I love that question. I use them differently. This is my short skinny on that. So the word flourishing in the field of psychology was really introduced through the movement of positive psychology, which really focuses on adults and does not have this developmental lens that you and I were just talking about change over time. And when flourishing was introduced and how it's been mostly studied, written about, conceptualized, is that it really has to do with an individual's life and how satisfied their life is. So people will talk about even hedonic or eudaimonic expressions of flourishing. So whether it, it feels good or is meaningful, but it really is subjective to the person of like, is my life meaningful? Which is your sense of satisfaction. Where in developmental psych, we use the word thriving as opposed to flourishing because thriving always has to do with how you're contributing to your context. So to thrive is not just to feel good about your life or even say, oh, my life is meaningful, but it's actually to have measurable contribution to the world beyond yourself. And so for a child, that might just be like their family because their world's not that big. But it's an orientation of not just, oh, I want a popsicle or a lollipop now, but that there is a sense of I am making the world, my family, my dinner table, a better mm. place. So thriving has this developmental change over time and a requirement of not just growing into one's strengths and sense of well-being and growing in relationship with others, but contributing to those relationships. And then flourishing also theologically tends to do, often has a perspective from consummation of a world that's reached, and that's very much how Wolf uses it, when God returns home in all of creation has come to its fullness and unity in Christ. So when I talk about the type of human thriving that we're interested in the Thrive Center is a type of human thriving that contributes to a flourishing world. Super helpful. When you talked about how a child or adolescent is contributing to their community, their world, it starts out as just your family and then it starts to branch out a little bit more. But there must be some really interesting things that the technology conversation are bringing to that because your community is expanding in this weird way that is 
technological and virtual. You're not getting those interpersonal face-to-face interactions, but you are getting feedback and you're contributing things to that community. I'm using quotes here because I don't know if these count as communities, you know, if you throw out on your I don't know, TikTok, whatever the kids are on now. There must be some interesting thing to throw into this conversation. Yeah, no, I think it's really important because it's obviously not just kids that are in technology, but all of us. So I I did a short piece for Fuller Magazine, uh, When Technology Helps You Thrive, that I was actually not always pleased with what I write, but I'm very pleased with that short piece. But in terms of relationships, the Stone Age Minds book that we wrote from an evolutionary perspective about the importance of relating to others. And one of the points that Justin particularly made in that book is that we have relational capacity as humans. So when it comes to technology and thriving, something we have to be careful of is like how broad we're casting our social nets. And the reality is that we really only have the bandwidth, (laughs) the psychological capacity to be in a certain amount of meaningful relationships And the way I operationalize meaningful relationships is relationships in which you have intimacy so that you can be vulnerable and be known and share, but also relationships where you're accountable. So the internet, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok can enable us to be intimate and share things, but there's not accountability. I mean, there might be like you lose likes, but not really in that life-changing in your eyes, face-to-face way. Which is why you see such vitriol on a lot of forums. There are a lot of spaces because people don't have to experience any repercussions. So people will be comfortable sharing sort of their, their worst selves, worst corners of their thinking. You already set up the content text for answering these questions when thinking of a human life on a timeline. But depression and anxiety are the most common mental illnesses. And so how could Christians think of mental illness and how can Christians thrive in a psychologically informed way when they're facing these types of difficulties? Two kind of big high level things I'd like to say about thriving is one thing I see thriving is a really multidimensional construct. So it's our physiology, our psychology, our relationality, our moral lives and our spiritual lives. And I tend not to draw on economic and all that, but that obviously factors in. So one of the things when we think about mental health and thriving in the face of challenge, we got to recall that there's all these components. So we might be struggling psychologically, but can we help compensate for that from a spiritual perspective? Also, I was listening to a podcast the other day on being talking about inflammation and depression and anxiety. Is that the one without talking about gut health? Exactly. Oh. <laughs> yeah. but we often don't think about that. Like, so if you want to quote unquote, get better and get over some of these things that we name psychological, we got to think about how does our spirituality, our relationships, our biological, our physical embodied life impact these. So that's one perspective. And then another perspective is that, as I did start to say, thriving is a developmental trajectory. There's ups and downs. I often contrast being in survival mode versus like thriving mode. Mm. And so tongue in cheek, I kind of talk about below the line and above the line. Below the line is what we're, is the work of resilience and when we're bouncing back from adversity, whether it's major trauma or it's just pandemic wear and tear, or even if it's like inflammation caused depression, right? There's something we're trying to recover from. We're above the line, the thriving work or life is life that is really focused on growing towards something intentionally. Purpose is one of the ways that we talk about that. 
the reality is, and we really experienced this in the pandemic, is life cycles between surviving and thriving all the time. And they're not exclusive. So pandemic 2020, we're surviving and looking for toilet paper. But we're also like thinking about, oh gosh, how can I pursue my life as a professor or running the Thrive Center? How am I working on my purpose, my vocation at the same time as I'm dealing with figuring out how to get food on the table for my three teenagers and my husband? So working at both ends. So when we think of mental health, one of the ways that we think about thriving in that time is to acknowledge like the vulnerability and being real and authentic of like, I'm struggling. I'm more anxious or more depressed. I'm having a harder time feeling aligned to that purpose that used to wake me up and get me out of bed in the morning. And then we can look at what are some of the resources for thriving. A little bit of a sidetrack. One of the greatest, I think, potential gifts of thriving for the church is drawing on positive psychology. And what we've really learned from positive youth development, study of purpose, is that when you just focus on getting rid of depression, getting rid of anxiety, getting rid of problems, well, great. That just gets you back to ground level. That does not move you towards purpose. But actually, when we think about what motivates us, what gives us the most value and meaning to our life, and how do we live that out? How does that inform our goals? How does that inform our roles as parent, as friend? And what, how does that inform our soul? <laughs> when we pursue those things, we get more. And when we focus on positive things, we end up buffering and often treating depression and anxiety. Now, when you get to clinical levels of depression and anxiety, you need therapeutic and sometimes also medication help, which again, I see as amazing tools that God has given us. So I think it's really important to work both the above the line, purposeful things, and also the below the line. And as Christians, I think in this era, 2022, we cannot underestimate the importance of face-to-face interactions that we have for the social good, et cetera, removed ourselves from a lot of in-person, intimate, vulnerable, (laughs) accountable interactions But we really need that. Like our brains, our emotions need that. Trish Warren this week in the New York Times had a really great piece on practices that you can do. And one of them was have face-to-face conversations. There are ways that when we acknowledge we're depressed or anxious, there are things that we can do. We can meditate, connect with people. So a few things. One is your lectures, along with lectures from Bob Emmons, who's Mr. Gratitude, and Lindsay Rutluna, who studied forgiveness in depth, and a lot of other resources. I put them together in a class. It's a positive psychology for theology class. So if you want to do a deep dive in a positive psych resources for theology for ministry, you can go there. I'm also hearing you say, Pam, to try to break us away from this idea that thriving is like this straight upper right kind of trajectory. It's a little bit loopy. So that's an important takeaway. And then this other thing I'm thinking is, especially if someone's like listening to this and they're struggling with depression or they're struggling with like crippling anxiety or a cocktail of both, it can be a little overwhelming to hear. We're complicated humans and the causal factors can come from all these different areas of life. If you're experiencing depression, anxiety, you could just, you could have a nutrition problem. 
You could need talk therapy. It might be helpful for you to go on an antidepressant for a little while. You maybe just need to exercise or get outside some more, you know, and it's like, okay, I'll try these 20 things or whatever. It can be a little overwhelming. And and I just wanted to kind of just acknowledge that because I've been in that position of being like, gosh, it could be there. There's like 20 different things that could help me overcome these negative experiences that are hindering me. But where do I begin? So I don't know if you have anything specific to say to that sense of overwhelm. We have to name that. And that might give people a momentary sense of peace to like take heart. Like you're not alone. Like a lot of this is in this space, but it is overwhelming. Oh, so now I have to think about what I'm eating. Well, I was just soothing myself with some ice cream or glass of wine. It really can make you crazy. But I think it is helpful to identify like what are some things you can do? Get out, get exercise, move your body, practice some breath exercises, find them online, go to the Thrive Center, <laughs> thethrivecenter.org, communicate, share. If you're not feeling like these are changing your situation, get help. And right now with telehealth, like Fuller's <laughs> Psychological and Family Services is actually a great resource that people can find online or telehealth if they don't have the option for a local therapeutic reference. It's probably pretty good advice to say, I think what you're alluding to too is like, just take it a day at a time. And for each day, don't think, oh my gosh, I have to do everything. I'm going to just try to do this one thing today, which is maybe just go for a walk around the block, or maybe it's calling a friend, or maybe it's doing a little research into therapists or some of the resources you just said, taking the little pieces at a time. Hope is an important thing to cultivate, which can sometimes show up in these practices, in these spiritual practices. And I feel like hope and purpose are related. <laughs> like if you feel a sense of purpose on your life, that sort of pulls you into the future, into a sense of hope that maybe I could make a contribution to this world that would make a meaningful impact and connect me with my world and people in my world. Absolutely. I'd love to say a little something on that. Yeah, please. <laughs> Actually, I do a paper just came out. I did the role of hope in thriving in a group of Salvadoran kids who live in poverty. So if they can have hope, <laughs> we can. But I don't mean that. Also, for those who feel hopeless, I want to be careful about saying that because sometimes if we're that depressed, like we can't even feel hope. Can't access that. Yeah. Yeah. So two things to say on that is that one in a Christian worldview we can rely on a hope beyond ourselves. So even in days where we can't feel the goodness, the positive feelings of hope, we can rest and have peace knowing God is hoping for us and working for us. And that beyond the self source of hope is so important. And that is such a gift that we have. I had a day the other day where I was like, yay, I have purpose, but like it's feeling challenging to get there. So like, I just had to go with like Romans and like, just trust that the spirit is praying on my behalf because I couldn't find the words. And just to take time in silence and going, okay, I know there is the spirit that can pray for me on my behalf when I don't even have the words. And to give ourselves grace that God is working on our behalf and to just find rest in that. And I think like two of uh, another a great gift from positive psychology that I know Bob's lectures would get at is the importance of emotion regulation. And often when psychologists think about emotion regulation, the first tier they think of is like regulating our anger or our anxiety and feeling calm. And there are a host of available online practices, whether you're doing mindfulness work, 
If you do electio divina, there's many ways that we can have that sense of rest that I was trying to communicate about just trusting the Holy Spirit to pray on our behalf. But we often overlook the elevating emotions. So we think about peace and calm. I think of that as like our limbic system brake pedal a bit, but we also need an elevating system. So gratitude helps us focus on things that bring us joy and delight. And those positive hits, like every time we reflect on gratitude, like we get dopamine hits. And that is what our depression is working against. I spent three years working with Miroslav Volf and expanded team on joy, realizing like when we attune to sources of joy in our life, we realize what activates us. We get insight into how God created us and what brings us joy and how do we get more of that. And for some of us, that might be like, oh, it's hard to think in the last year or two with pandemic life. But before that, before I felt this heaviness come over me or this preoccupation of anxiety come over me, what delighted me and what brought me joy? And whether it was dancing or video games or like... yeah. Meeting with friends, like go chase that, go back after that. But I think like the Ignatian prayer of examine is a great way to daily check in on sources of joy and light and hope in your life. Yeah, you do have to make that a practice because the joy, the gratitude that we experience, our cognitive systems will automatically highlight the not so nice things, the negative things. The hurt feelings are more salient than the good feelings because our body's like building up these like protective things like, oh, remember when that hurt you? Don't let that happen again. You know, we have some cognitive things that are sort of intuitively sending us in a not so helpful direction. I call it like a cognitive override. We have to remind ourselves like, okay, the way our brains have evolved is that we have this bad copy editor. It like edits, it edits out the good and emphasizes the bad. It's like the opposite of how most people treat their Instagram. It's like we have an Insta in our mind of all the bad stuff that happened to us. That's what dominates rather than the positive things. And that's where like spiritual practices are so important because as you said, we have to like habituate ritualize daily, like recalling our blessings, recalling the gifts, recalling moments of delights and joy, because we don't necessarily do that. But there is extraordinary research out there. And I'm thinking a lot of Mary Helen and Mordino Yang at USC, who studies meaning making. And she really actually focuses on adolescents, young adults, of how adolescents make meaning. But we actually can override that part of our brain that is just prone towards anxiety. I really think this is like Justin and I wrote on evolution. We're not necessarily genetically adapting, but we're using our brains to quote unquote evolve or change these days. And one of the most profound ways we can do that is by practicing making meaning and focusing on positive things because it changes the wiring of our brain. And then that will direct us more towards the things that bring goodness. Yeah, and having the kind of best version of ourselves to uh, emerge. Maybe someone might think like, oh, are you just talking about being Pollyanna, like ignoring the bad? What we're talking about actually creates just more of a balance and a perspective for the stories we tell ourselves because we are actually more inclined to tell ourselves some bad stories about our lives. Talking about meaning making, a lot of that happens in the context of narrative, right? Like I I failed a test. I'm a loser. I'm dumb. Like rather than this is a bad thing that happened or I didn't do as well as I could have, you know, kind of essentializing. Anyway, this is such a good 
part of the conversation, but I don't want to like ignore some of the other questions that came in that I want to get to. So we had this one come in that was what I think is kind of a hard question. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about it. It's hard on a personal level. If you've ever known someone who experienced like a degenerative disease like dementia or Alzheimer's, I can't imagine what it's like to have that kind of diagnosis. And also for the person who's caring for the person with that diagnosis. Is there any way to think of that person thriving anymore or does thriving sit in a situation like that? How can we think of that as Christians? You sent me that question ahead of time that I found one. When I think, I should have said this more clearly in the beginning, when I think about telos or purpose and where we're headed, I really think of these dimensions of the differentiated self that is growing, becoming strength-based, more dialed in with passions and self, but also the related person who's interdependent and has the intimacy and accountability in making contributions. And also the third would be really the aspirational development, the moral and virtue development that keeps us aligned between other and self and contributing and the spirituality that fuels us. I mean, it's like one thing to know what's right, but it's another thing to like be motivated to sustain living that out. So when I think about a person with dementia, I want to think about their connection to themselves, their connection to others, and we could say like their connection to God. And, and life is a journey that does involve not just adolescing and growing, but eventually senescing and losing a lot of our abilities, whether physical or cognitive. So I think a really practical question is how with someone losing much of their cognitive capacities, how can we help them keep connected to themselves? So often short-term memory is lost. So there might be real intentional efforts about either objects or photos or things that are in those more deep-rooted memories that are going to last longer to help them keep connected to what gives them joy or purpose. Then also, we often think about people with cognitive disabilities about sustaining community for them. So when they're not able to, that we know we have to scaffold them more aggressively or more intentionally, that's really important. But over time, that eventually even is lost on the person with dementia. And, and the same with keeping them connected to God. And I, I think it's worth, I mean, this is where I, people often don't want the diagnosis, so they'll be avoidant about the diagnosis. But being able to ascertain the prognosis <laughs> Really on is great because then we can help proactively search for what's meaningful of childhood icons or th things that might serve as an icon to keep people connected to God. But at some point we realize like thriving becomes more of a struggle by this mm -hmm. formulation of being connected. And we really have to think about the caregiver, like you said, because often it's the case with the caregiver that they lose their sense of selves because so much is wrapped around the person they're caring for. And they lose their other sense of community because, again, they're not able to keep that balanced life. So I think when thinking about caregivers, this model of keeping connected to your own like goals and your roles and your relationships and your own soul is really a helpful framework and a helpful way to think about caregivers. That is sometimes the hardest point when your role in your community or your world is to be the person who's cared for, for anyone who's been through even just a really hard time, like that can be a very difficult position to find yourself in. Often communities are really blessed by caring for individuals who are struggling through medical crises or family crises or things like that, but that can be a really tough thing. It is. I have seen 
elderly couples. So for the caregiver Mm -hmm. to actually become activated about caregiving because it becomes a purpose Mm -hmm. where they feel a lot of their life getting smaller and they're not having the professional feedback because they're retired or their social world is getting smaller, that all of a sudden having a purpose of giving care for their partner can be very empowering. But when that becomes, replaces all that other stuff that keeps them thriving, that becomes detrimental. So that balance is really important. It feels like that just needs to be part of our understanding of a thriving life is that it's going to include times of vulnerability where we're the one cared for or accommodated to. And that's not a bad thing. That's part of life. It's part of everyone's life. The next question I want to hit is about personality difference. And we had a question come in about introverts and extroverts. And what I know from, especially working for Justin, who's really cranky about personality tests and Enneagram and stuff, which I know a lot of psychologists are. (laughs) But that there is this big five scale, which is the big five personality dimensions. I'm like pretending to be the psychologist here. And one of them is introversion, extroversion. Like that is one that that is scientifically valid. But anyway, the question asks, if that's a real distinction, introverts, extroverts, does this mean that sociality and relationships are more central to some people's flourishing than others or not? This is a great question. As a developmentalist, the word plasticity always will like trump disposition or trait. There's a sentence of fantastic words. So we want to focus on like how people can grow and change. But yes, there are some propensities that we are born with. And introversion and extroversion tends to be one of those that people tend to have these tendencies that they may not change a ton in. But they're, and they're really important to recognize Throughout the pandemic, we're realizing that the people that were having the hardest time initially were extroverts. And the introverts were like, this is my era. That's, that's my husband. Yeah. yeah, I'm thrilled. But what we're seeing long term is that extroverts have that drive to recultivate, rekindle, overcome social anxiety, get out and be with people where the introverts are not. And so the long-term pain and loss, introvert, and like this is not across the board, but in many instances, the introverts are suffering. So just as an example of how differences do play out and it's really real, but we are relational beings and we all, extroverts, introverts, need relationships. Same quantity, or types of relationships, not necessarily the same. But for those of us, and it's hard, for those of us who are pulled towards lots of people and groups and social media is awesome because you can interact with a lot and it's stimulating and exciting to go. I love going to conferences. I love meeting people. But that over time, if we're not cultivating intimacy and accountability, there's a drain in that broad touch of people. And at the other end of the spectrum for introverts who may not necessarily be drawn to people and then we're in an era where you have to work harder at being with people that by excluding oneself from being in intimate relationships, there's going to be a cost to mental health over time. I think if I caught you right, like even an extrovert can cultivate relationships and they think that, oh yeah, I'm totally in relationship, but there might not be a level of intimacy and accountability there that could be dangerous or at least unhealthy? Yeah, I think we want to think of when we talk about relational capacity, like we want to think about who are those five people in my life? Mm -hmm. And it may not be the same five through every season, whether it's 
work circumstances, family circumstances might be pulling us in other directions of who are the people that know me, my foibles, my particularities, my struggles, and can buoy me up and support me in those. Who can remind me of where I find joy and delight when I can't? Who, and that I'm reciprocating that for. There we go back to the reciprocating self. Who are those three to five people? And if we're too busy with so many people to be nurturing those relationships, we all need like that warning alert of like, okay, back off the time you're spending at a superficial, shallow level and get deep, make sure that you're keeping deeply connected with those few people. Yeah, anecdotally, a lot of people have told me that the pandemic helped them sort of weed that out a little bit. Like they had a lot of relationships that they didn't really need in their life. It drew into focus the relationships that were important and let some other ones fall to the wayside, which kind of shuffled around a lot of things. But I think that was a kind of a healthy thing that the pandemic emphasized for a lot of people. I called it like I was very aware. It was like Marie Kondo got my social life. You've moved. We are our lives spread out, whether it's children in the schools they go to or different jobs or locations or neighborhoods. We just with technology, we don't tend to move on from people like we once were forced to. So we collect people, which is awesome and lovely, but you don't have the psychological bandwidth or time to maintain that. And I don't want to focus on the getting rid of relationships like people are disposable type of things. I think in more of a positive way, it more made you see the relationships that actually bring you a lot of joy that maybe you weren't investing in enough. You're like, oh, actually, this person brings out great things in me and I love them. And this seems like a really healthy, rich relationship. But I have been so distracted by a lot of other acquaintances or casual relationships that caused me to not be investing in this person as much as I could. I hear people going, wow, now that life has, quote unquote, returned or reaccelerated into busyness and social franticness. Those connections with high fidelity are less frequent and there's more people to attend to. Another thing that happened in the pandemic, which is related, is it caused people to think about purpose and vocation and their jobs. Like the, you have this talk of the great resignation, right? A lot of people got laid off, especially in the beginning which always gives you time to sort of reflect when you've been laid off. Or maybe you were working from home, so you didn't just have the actual office. It gave you some freedom to think of life differently. What are your insights on the relationship between thriving and work and how that relationship works, your job or whatever you define as your work in your life? If you look at one of those theocyte lectures and you see my PowerPoints, I'm often drawing like, Who are we as an individual? How's our individual development overlapping with our relational development, overlapping with this aspirational development? And inside the overlap is our sense of purpose. And from a Christian perspective, it's like, yeah, what's unique about you? How do you relate to the world? And then how are you becoming like Christ? Because that is a call on our lives. And part of our vocation is to become more like Jesus. And so at that intersection is that sense of purpose. In the U.S., we can get really excited about work and purpose. And that can start to define a lot of our identity. When that gets out of balance, last I checked, that was not becoming more like Jesus, to live without Sabbath, to live without rest, to live without community. We need that in check to realize like, oh, I'm pursuing things that I love and that I'm passionate about, but in a way that enables me to become like Christ. So when I think of work, I hope that it is aligned with that sense of purpose that it has something to do with our personal goals and her life. 
and our personal roles. So like if parenting is part of your vocation or being a spouse or a friend, which indelibly like all of us have some human relational roles in our life, if our work threatens those, then that's out of alignment. So vocation to me is bigger than work. And vocation is really aligned with thriving. So the more that like work, our job can align with this notion of vocation, our purpose, the more it helps us thrive. And for all of us, we're really lucky and fortunate and blessed if our work hits that purpose. For some people, they may say delivering Uber food, that's not what I wake up for in the morning, but I love people. I love making people stay better. And so when I give someone a ride, it may not be long term, but I'm happy to be hospitable. I have the gift of hospitality. Or it's helping me put food on the table. So that work, that job is a means to a greater act. Providing for my family or, yeah, and that's my sense of purpose. So work is both an opportunity to thrive, but it can be a threat to thriving because it's often out of whack in, and takes over too It much. seems like people intuitively, I mean, we all want and have something that gives us a sense of purpose. What kind of questions do you ask people in order to help them identify what that is for individuals? When I say purpose, I haven't explicitly said. I really draw on Bill Damon and some folks that have worked with him, like Kendall Brock, their understanding of purpose, which one is it's an enduring life goal. So it's something that's actionable and that you can do about it. So we distinguish meaning and purpose. Meaning is like, oh, I have meaning. My life is meaningful. This is meaningful to me. But purpose is something we can do about it. Christians might say, oh, glorifying God is my purpose. But that's not necessarily actionable. So how do we take that grand meta goal and personalize it and say, oh, what is unique to me? How do I glorify God? What are my gifts? What are my strengths that I can bring glory to God through? So I go back to that telos trefoil and say, what are your passions? What are your strengths? If you want, what's your Enneagram type? Don't tell Justin. Have you taken Strength Finder? What are your strengths? What are your spiritual gifts? There's many lenses for identifying what our strengths are. What sparked your interest as a kid and how does that play out as an adult? And then how, I do the beaker thing, like how can that contribute to the world? Can you make money at that? What's the call on your life right now to become like Christ? So like I find purpose and I actually do this with my students as I have them journal over time about things that they feel called to that are their strengths or people groups that they feel called to. Because that's often a place of alignment. Like your gift might be photography, but is there a group of people that you want to benefit with that photography? Sure. Serving a certain community often comes with a lot of sense of purpose. I had like, actually it was someone at Fuller because I got my master's there. But when I started out, I met with someone who was trying to help me figure out what my specific degree should be. And we did that exercise of thinking back on the last three or four jobs I've had and doing an examine type thing where you wrote down all the things that brought you the most joy about that job within that job. And then like noting the stuff that wasn't so helpful or fun or enjoyable for you as a person and then seeing how you could get your life in more alignment with more of the good stuff. ThriveCenter.org. I have an exercise of the five A's. That really is an exercise around attuning to joy, of attuning in your life. When did you just become aware of when you felt joy? Like, what or not? 
<laughs> and then so you attune and then you become aware of what was I doing? Who was I with? And then how do you make steps to align? That's the third day. Align your life more fully with that source of joy. And then how do you activate and actually pursue it? And then how do you assess, like, how is that going? And part of that assessment, I would throw another A of accountability. Because we don't want to be like, oh, well, stealing kids candy brought me joy today. Like, that's not a good idea. Like, we need to share and have other perspectives on sources of joy for us. But I think that we really underestimate the gift that joy is to us of like just how God speaks to us of how we're wired. There was one more question we talked about that was about spiritual practices. A lot of talking about spiritual practices was littered throughout our conversation. It came up several times. But did you want to say just something about the question is what spiritual practices are most helpful to what kind of people, what circumstances? Are they all created equal? Did you have some thoughts you wanted to share? Or? No, I think I don't think all spiritual practices are created equal at all. And one of the reasons I'm passionate about psychological science is we actually have more understanding of why some practices are more effective than others. And then the first thing I got to say about that is that people aren't all the same either. So people will have better experiences or more effective experiences for thriving with some practices than others and in different seasons of life. One thing we know that is a major issue in society today is even just our attention span and that honestly, attention span and subjective well-being are highly correlated. Attention and actually ability to pursue goals and master things is highly related. Mm -hmm. So our phone is working against us. Technology is working against us. We need to counteract that. So when we take on spiritual practices of whether silence, centering prayer, meditating on a word, praying a word, breath prayers, lectio, these calm regulation, being able to expand our focus and attention span and enduring longer periods of time during those practices is Totally beneficial. <laughs> Not just enabling us to have the capacity to be more aware of God and the Holy Spirit in our life, but for all those mental health indicators. But then for someone who's really struggling with anxiety, maybe just having a lot of vacuous space is not great because it just creates an opportunity to ruminate. So maybe like an app, like Pray As You mm -hmm. Go, that offers a 12-minute Lectio Divina invitation to pray and reflect on scripture might be better for a mind that is ruminating or anxious mm -hmm. or running all over mm -hmm. the place. So it's really people need a degree of understanding and again, attuning to themselves of what's helping bring calm, what's helping bring joy, what's helping me feel connected to others. And the last thing I'll say that I think is grossly understudied and under understood is that even like the practices of gratitude, we know are totally theologically consistent with our faith and really helpful psychologically and physically apparently yeah and physically yeah and yeah, socially yeah. i mean like gratitude but we often focus on gifts mm. that are individual mm. so at the end of my day what am i thankful for mm -hmm. it's very rare that we practice focusing on communal gifts and i really wonder what happens to our identity what happens to our goals what happens to our prosociality when we intentionally reflect on whether locally communal gifts, a human level species gifts, or a community practices gratitude around, I'm grateful for this for my community. 
whether it's new PowerPoint projector or a new worship leader or a new teacher. But I think looking at communal gifts to, again, take our minds off, just focus on ourselves and focusing beyond ourselves could be really beneficial. Definitely. What's coming to mind to me and to get biblical about it is when Paul uses the analogy of a human body for Mm. the early church community and thinking like, oh, if you're a hand, don't go, oh, why aren't I a mouth or an ear or something Mm -hmm. like that? But Mm -hmm. you're all connected to the body. You're all part of the same thing, but you're fulfilling different purposes. The way that like there's all this like the 15 minutes of celebrity or the way that we elevate people with certain kinds of personalities Mm -hmm. or gifts in our culture. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we we feel like, oh, my life should look this way. Or if I'm going to be thriving at an optimal level, I'll be like this person. Just discerning what your own place and purpose is and just being the best version of it. And the best version of yourself. Yeah. And your research really blows up that analogy. There's way more parts of the body than I even thought. Maybe Mm -hmm. the analogy starts to break down there. But like the way that people are so unique and so special and in so many different contexts in interacting with all these different contexts too. That's really insightful. This has been such a rich conversation, Pam, and I really appreciate you taking the time. I think it was very good and very rich. I hope it was helpful. Thank you. Those are such great questions. You just do a great (laughs) job and you're such a great conversationalist. Oh, thank you. Now we're going to hear some of Justin Barrett's thoughts on the conversation you just listened to. You have been listening to this conversation series and your name comes up a lot. I wonder if you keep track of how many times someone invokes your name. I try not to. (laughs) I get slightly uncomfortable. So modest and humble. You don't like to keep a tally and then like look at it on a day when you're feeling bad. You could just be like, oh, look how important I am to all these people. No, that's a great idea. I I hadn't (laughs) thought of that. Maybe I should. There you go. You've just listened to my conversation with Pam King, who was your colleague for many years and who you co-authored a book with, which we discussed a lot in that conversation. So I think where we should start with is just if you have any embarrassing stories about Pam. (laughs) There was a time where we convinced her that these new security magnets that were installed outside of offices were keeping track of how often you went into your office because there was a space crunch on campus and she was on sabbatical. And so she was very concerned that it was somehow because she wasn't coming in the office every day that the powers that be might think, oh, I don't use, she doesn't use her office. Let's take it away from her. (laughs) So did she have like an assistant or like an admin support person just go in and out of her office occasionally just to make she she certainly floated the idea before we <laughs> let her in on the joke that no that's not actually what at least we don't <laughs> think that's what it was about so yeah now pam was so a great sport it turns out she's a decent volleyball player and runner too i've done both of those things with pam as well so yeah yeah Pam's i didn't know time. that about i didn't know that about her you're good at learning people's like little hobbies and things we didn't know about people. It's good to know your colleagues as full people and not just as a brain on a stick that walks around with some ideas. So what stood out to you in my conversation with Pam? I felt like I could have talked to her for like a long time. There was a lot of good stuff there and pretty wide ranging from her own vocational story and then 
to getting into mental illness, all her work with thriving and what is thriving versus flourishing from her perspective, hope, joy, purpose, all those types of things. But what kind of stuck out to you as something something salient or something you wanted to to kind of grab onto? Yeah, there were a couple of issues that you and Pam touched on that I thought deserved a little bit of highlighting or elaboration. One of those was uh, your discussion about how to approach the empirical sciences as a Christian, and especially those topics in the empirical sciences that we might think of as having a big sort of spiritual component. I think it resonated with me because it's a conversation I've had with other people at various points when I've done things like doing the scientific study of conversion, for instance, or sometimes it's prayer practices or whatever it is. We sometimes hear this sort of idea of when you come up with a scientific explanation or a causal model, does that leave out God's agency or the work of the Holy Spirit, for instance? And Pam offered, because it wasn't a main topic, I think a very quick kind of, oh, well, one way to look at it is this. Don't get excited. Don't be concerned here. Our best social scientific or psychological scientific models usually explain a a fairly modest percentage of the variance. That's the jargon we use. We explain so much of the variance. And unlike, say, uh, physics or chemistry, where they can run an experiment and explain 90% of the variance or something like that, we're pretty excited when we explain 20% of the variance. So you might think, well, then there's 80% of the variance left over for the Holy Spirit. I think that's bad theology, but (laughs) (laughs) because, of course, that 20% of the variance is also the sustaining work of the Holy Spirit. Wait, why is it so different? Why is it so different between kind of the psychological human scientists and the physicists? Like you just said, what's what? Why are we so bad at explaining the (laughs) Yeah. The difference is levels of complexity. So one way to think of it is that, and I I mean uh, no offense to my scientific colleagues in other disciplines, and this was not my observation. This has been observed by lots of other people, including Martin Rees, the then president of the Royal Academy of Science. I believe he's an astrophysicist who observed that when you're examining the biggest and littlest things in the cosmos, so big things like galaxies or small things like subatomic particles, you're dealing with relatively simple systems because only certain layers of or levels of causation are really at all sort of relevant. But when you get to middle-sized objects, which is the kind of stuff that humans usually traffic in, and especially living middle-sized objects, and especially social living-sized objects, psychological, social, politically and culturally embedded middle-sized objects, you have all of these layers of explanation that all interact with each other in certain kinds of ways. And so you have very high degrees of complexity. So the human sciences are very complex. And for that reason, among others, uh, like experimental control that we can't have over humans the way we can over other kinds of things, our best models are explaining a pretty small percentage of, of the variance. That's even before we get into considerations of free will or something like that. Oh, yeah. I it's was just actually a product just, of the science. I was just debating whether or not to bring up free will <laughs> in response to this, because this actually also came up in my conversation with Lindsay, which if you listen to my conversation with Lindsay, we got into all the questions about culpability, like sometimes Christians feel that there is some hesitancy to engage psychological explanations about human beings because they think that 
there's going to be an explaining away of personal responsibility or something like that, that by offering psychological levels of explanation that you kind of do away with the idea of sin. And, and so so if you're experiencing a sin problem, there's it's one thing and you're culpable and you got to deal with that. And if you're dealing with like, say, a medical problem, then, you know, it's totally outside of control. But neither of those things are true. Personal responsibility works on a spectrum <laughs> and there's lots of different levels of causation going on. So even it just reminded me of that part of that conversation. It, it's a really important conversation to have about how these different levels of causation, our biology, our sociality, our psychology, how each of these layers of causation really have, they've got regularities, causal sorts of regularities. They've got ranges of possibility within which we can exercise free will is at least the way I like to look at it. But they are limiting. I mean, I can't jump as high as I could possibly want to jump. There are ranges of possibilities. I can jump a little bit higher if I put a little more effort in. That's an exercise of my will, but I can't jump infinitely high. Okay, that's a boring kind of constraint. But it's also the case that I can hold in memory so many chunks of information, but not an infinite number of chunks of information. And some bits of information are easier for me to hold in working memory than others. So I can exercise will within those parameters. And as we're talking about levels of causation, you can think of each of those levels then are sort of constraining our exercise of freedom. But at no point do we arrive at the conclusion that there isn't any will, that there isn't any freedom. Even if you want to bring God's sovereignty into it, ooh, he went there. When I used to teach at Calvin College, a good reformed institution, lots of people having a high view of God's sovereignty and so forth, I would frequently, when I presented the findings of introductory psychology, get this kind of, well, what about human freedom as well as divine sovereignty in relation to all of these causal structures? And it's a good question. It's worth asking. And my sort of quick answer to make people feel a little more comfortable in the space, <laughs> I have a couple of variants on this, depending on who I'm talking to. One of those I'll use is sort of sports metaphor for people who like that sort of thing. It's a little bit like playing basketball. You know, that if you're, say, you're a, an eight-year-old kid and you go down to the park with two other friends and, and you are joined by, insert name of famous basketball player here. Back then it was Michael Jordan, but you could put in LeBron James, whoever you want. And he says, hey, can I be on your team? And you're like, cool. At that point in your two-on-two -two basketball game, the outcome of the game is fully determined. We know exactly who's going to win the game. <laughs> But it does not follow that I don't get to play. It doesn't follow that I'm not still dribbling and taking shots and trying to defend and doing all of the things that are playing basketball. But I know I'm going to win, too. If you don't like sports metaphors, we could talk about chess playing. And I learned after using the chess metaphor with some people that I guess Eleanor Stump has used a similar kind of chess metaphor that going through life, I think she says something roughly to the effect, if it's like playing chess with someone who wants you to win, um, God wants you to win the chess game. And he's a good enough player that no matter how you screw up, he can find a way for you to win. But you're still making decisions. You're still playing the game within the parameters of the rules. What I like about the sports and game metaphors is they're rules, they're, they're constraints. You can't decide, 
I am now going to dunk from half court because you can't. Or I'm now going to pick up the ball and run seven steps. No, no, you're violating the rules. Or with chess, I want my knight to jump over all of the other pieces across the board and take out your queen. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't work that way. There are rules of the game. <laughs> Likewise, there are these levels of causation. Ah, he brought it back. <laughs> that, well, well, well. That constraint, the kind of moves we can make. But it doesn't mean we aren't making moves. <laughs> That's a fun analogy. Yeah. <laughs> That's fun. I like it. I think that, yeah, in case people are discouraged and think you don't have to figure out everything out there is to figure out about free will on like a scientific, philosophical, theological level in order to just understand that humans are complex and we have multiple complicated interacting layers and that we just need to give each other grace and have a little humility when we think we know what's going on with somebody. <laughs> Uh, just to put a little button on that. I think you'd agree, right? <laughs> Thanks for the button. Yes, I like that. Um, and, and back to the empirical science stuff. Yes. Like, So even when I'm doing empirical science of conversion and maybe I make a discovery, and this is true, work I did with Bob Emmons and Sarah Schnitker and others, we, we were able to document some factors that seemed to predict who was likely to make a decision for Christ at a youth outreach camp, namely kids whose day-to-day strivings, as they're called, which is their, your sort of day-to-day goals that motivate your action. If you had a lot of conflict amongst those, which has been associated with poor psychological and physical health, by the way, because you can imagine that if you've got lots of day-to-day goals that are kind of in conflict with each other, that produces anxiety, stress, and so forth. Well, it happens to be those kids with that kind of conflicted goal network who are also likely to say, you know what, I'm going to give Jesus a chance. Interesting. Um, like, oh, hey, you kind of actually are drawn to what could help fix this problem. Because, again, Bob Emmons' research shows that if you have more what he called spiritual strivings in your group of day-to-day goals or strivings, they're less likely to be conflicted. But that kind of work, I did get people saying, yeah, but what about the Holy Spirit? One way to look at it is one of the things that the science is doing is helping us discover the regularities by which the Holy Spirit operates with us, right? Ours is not a God of chaos who just sort of arbitrarily does everything. He's vastly beyond us and transcendent. So we're not going to get everything right. There's going to be lots of variants we know that we can't explain for sure, when it comes to divine action. But he's set up a fairly regular world. He's imposed order on the chaos and the science of even the stuff that has to do with how humans interact with God. We should expect at least some broad parameters of regularities, what God typically does. And the sciences can help us see that. Scripture helps us to see that. Hmm. Our tradition helps us see that. Yeah. The second issue that sort of jumped out at me was the tough case of how we thrive in the face of chronic illness or end-of-life diseases that Mm -hmm. seem to rob people of at least a high degree of agency. They can separate them relationally from other people. These conditions seem to take us out of those very human attributes that in the book we pointed to, Thriving with Stone Age Mind book that we suggested. Are, uh, this, these are the resources we have for thriving. I thought Pam did a good job talking about that. And I can't pretend to have a really great additional answer 
to that. I only wanted to offer sort of my own reflections on this as, again, just to punctuate some of the things that she said. I'll get a little bit personal here. It made made me think a little bit of my grandmother when she was dying. And uh, the last time I saw her, she was in chronic pain. She was shrinking because her bones were degenerating. She wasn't big to begin with, so she was getting even tinier. She was living in one of these assisted living kinds of facilities. And what was striking is, even though she was in pain and she didn't think terribly clearly all the time, there really wasn't any hope for a more positive physical future. I think we might still characterize her as thriving in that situation strangely enough. And why is that? Because she, in the face of these physical, emotional, psychological challenges, was still doing her best to be the best version of herself. She was still showing a remarkable degree of care with those around her. Her good humor, I was kind of she was always funny, but she was particularly funny at the time. I mean, she was she was like flirting with attendants and things like that. These these men in their 50s, and here she is, 90 years old-ish, and flirting with them and stuff, and just helping everybody around her just have a better day, even though she was in great pain and suffering. And, um, and so in some ways, that was heroic to me to see that, and it was inspiring. And we all have, we all have our stuff, right? We all, we have situational factors. We have physical factors. We have psychological factors that limit our agency, our ability to be the, the full version of ourselves. But we're never, I think, without resources to continue to develop things in that important spiritual thriving kind of sense. At least that's, yeah, I, I say that somewhat aspirationally. I hope that's the case. I trust that that's the case. What you were saying previously, our capacities are limited. And they'll fluctuate throughout our lives, different capacities, mental capacities, physical capacities. And eventually, (laughs) some of them for sure are going to decrease. But whatever we can do within those limitations, we can almost always do at least something a little bit beautiful, even in our most vulnerable states. Right. And even even if it's not those kinds of limitations, there are our, our social, our cultural, our material limitations, right? Some people are born into and will die in poverty. And there's no way of them getting out of that. Does that mean they can't thrive in poverty? Well, that's not right. There are people who thrive in poverty. There are people who thrive imprisoned. Some people are born into imprisonment and uh, all kinds of ensnaring kinds of injustice and so forth that they will never escape. Mm -hmm. And that's sad and we should work against those things. But it doesn't mean that those people cannot be on a path toward more closely approximating the kind of life and person that God would have them be. Mm. We can't steal that from them. Mm. 